I wonder if any of you here have ever had that experience of knowing something and uh, not wanting to know it. Knowing something but wanting to not know. Uh, for example, let's say you have a leaking roof at your home and uh, you suspect that it's a major problem, which it is. Uh, you have a nagging hunch that the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to get, which is true. But frankly, you don't want to know about it because it's too hard to deal with. It's uh, too expensive. It, it will be too inconvenient uh, to have to resolve. And so what do you do? You block it out. You try to forget about it. It goes into the too hard basket and you choose not to think about it. Now, I know car maintenance can be like that for me. I might hear a, a strange sound coming from the engine. Uh, this was particularly the case with the older car. And I uh, think, what's that noise? Ah, never mind, I'm sure it'll, it'll resolve itself. Uh, it'll go away. And, you know, as it is with problems in the home and problems in the car, so it can be with problems in our lives. Uh, there can be uh, issues, there can be uh, problems in our lives that we would actually rather not know about. Uh, and that's especially the case when it comes to dealing with sin, uh, with disobedience to God. Uh, we have this nagging hunch that there's some issues there and yet we would prefer not to worry about it. We prefer to put it off, uh, hope that they will just resolve themselves if we um, ignore them. In fact, we can do that with other people as well. You know, parents, sometimes with children. Uh, you can do that sometimes with a friend. Uh, you know there's a problem. You probably should say something, but you would just prefer not to know. Uh, it's too hard to deal with. And uh, do you know that's really, that is one of the underlying themes of this chapter. <clears throat> Knowing something but preferring not to know, trying to hide it. <clears throat> and uh, this is a chapter that records uh, Saul's rejection as king. And he's rejected. Why? Because of his sin, because of his disobedience to God. And as we'll see, Saul approached his sin the way some of us approach a leaking roof in a house or the way I sometimes approach noise in a car engine. We know there's a problem, but we would rather not know about it. We would prefer to ignore it and hope it goes away. And uh, we see in this passage what God thinks about that. And so let's have a look. What does God think about that? Well, the first thing we um, see in this passage is that God never deals with sin like some of us deal with a leaking roof. He never minimises it. He never overlooks it. He always does something about it. And you can see that with this opening section where he gives instructions to Saul about what to do with the Amalekites. So if you look down at verse 3 there, it says uh, God's word to Saul through Samuel is, go and strike Amalek and to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, this is one of those times in the Old Testament where God uses his own people as the instruments of justice on a wicked nation. See, the total destruction of all people and all animals, that's a sign that God's judgment is coming upon a wicked nation. Now, obviously, a lot of people find that uh, very disturbing and uh, would kind of wish that we could you know, just 
take out the scissors and cut those bits out of the Bible because it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, but we can't do that because, well, first this is God's word. You can't take bits out that you don't like. But that actually fails to understand what's going on here. Because what we have here is a very clear picture about how God views sin. How God, what God thinks about human wickedness. Uh, and it shows how he responds because he is a holy and righteous God. And God in his righteousness must always deal with sin. Uh, he can't treat it like the leaking roof. He can't just think, oh, well, I'll just pretend I didn't see that or, and just hope it kind of resolves itself. God has to deal with sin. It's part of his very nature that he is the God of justice. And you need to realise that with the Amalekites, uh, they had committed some horrendous war crimes against God's people. Uh, that's what's mentioned in verse 2 where uh, the Lord says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, you can read all about that in Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy 25. Um, I'll just give you a rundown. What happened is when Israel were fleeing from slavery in Egypt, there were some stragglers at the back of the line and the Amalekites came along and killed those stragglers, those defenceless people who couldn't keep up they killed them. And God noted that. And he was determined to deal with that. And uh, it's been 300 years since that's happened. God had noted it. But now the time has come for him to deal with it. Now the time has come for justice to be done. And sometimes... On that delay, you know, there's been 300 years, sometimes people ask, hang on, isn't God punishing a contemporary generation for what a former generation did? And, you know, isn't that a little bit unfair? But that's not entirely the case, and that comes out in this chapter because we actually learn that what the Amalekites did those 300 years earlier, they were still doing. You know, in verse 18, they're, called, um, they're still called sinners, uh, which implies culpability. It implies that they're still doing the same sorts of things. Uh, verse 33 mentions some of the current king of Amalek, uh, um, Agag, some of his war crimes. And so what we have here is a nation that has been unrelenting in their, uh, their, their oppression, uh, their wickedness, their violence against defenceless people. God has delayed his judgment for 300 years now, why does God ever delay his judgment? Why does he hold it back? The reason given in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 is to give people time to repent, okay? time to change their ways. And God has he's delayed it. There hasn't been any change. This is a people who have proved over the centuries that they are never going to change. And so they are to all be wiped out. Okay, this is a matter of justice. And God's very nature means that he can't just stand by. He can't just let that one slide. He cannot overlook human wickedness. God never minimises sin. And I know that's all very confronting, but you do have to realise that this is actually good news. This is good news for the world because this is, this is showing us that there is hope 
for all the evil in the world. You know, don't you watch the news every night and it just seems like there is no hope. It's never going to change. No matter how much we educate, no matter how much we advance in technology, it's never going to change the fact that this world is just full of evil uh, and, and everyone hurting each other. And yet here we have this good news. There's a God of justice who is absolutely determined to doing something about it. And he set a day when he will do that. Do you know, this idea of God judging sin, it's actually part of the gospel proclamation. It's part of the good news of the gospel. And we see that in Acts 17. Let's look at a couple of verses in Acts 17 where um, Paul, he, he's, he's uh, teaching the um, Greeks and he says uh, that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so there you go, God, he set a day, he's going to finally deal with all evil. And yet what do we see here? That it's a very personal matter for all of us because it says God commands all people everywhere. That means all, even in this room today, everyone must repent. What does that imply? It implies that God is going to deal with every single person in the same way that he, had dealt, that he dealt with the Amalekites. Everyone is going to come under his justice on that final day. The good news is that he has sent a saviour, that the one who was raised from the dead is the one who has gone to the cross to take judgment in the place of sinners so that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, anyone who repents of their sin, as we're called to do, puts their trust in Jesus, Jesus takes your judgment for you, okay, in your place, so that on the day when he comes again to judge the world, you won't be judged along with the rest of the world. But if you continue in your rebellion, if you continue to reject Jesus, then you are living on borrowed time. And uh, we see that God doesn't minimise sin. He doesn't overlook it. Okay? There's only hope in Christ. Outside of him, there is no hope. Because it's not in God's nature to overlook sin. It's not in his nature to treat it like that leaking roof. Just sort of think, oh, well, we'll just forget about that. No, no, God can't do that because he cannot minimise sin. Now, the second uh, thing we see here in this passage is that while God doesn't minimise sin, we see that often his people do. And we see that in this next section on Saul, uh, Saul's disobedience, which runs from verse 9 right through to verse 31. And uh, here we see Saul, he was the king. And part of Saul's job as the king, he was to lead in this uh, being an instrument of justice against the Amalekites. Uh, he had some very clear instructions on what that involved. Okay, very clear instructions. Uh, he wasn't to personally um, benefit from that mission in any, any way. He wasn't to profit. He wasn't to keep the, the good stuff. Now, he wasn't to become wealthy from um, this mission. And yet we learn pretty quickly that Saul has a very different agenda in mind. Uh, you see in verse 9 that it says that uh, Saul spared Agag and the best of the sheep. 
and uh, all that was good, um, all the rubbish he got rid of, <laughs> you know, destroy all that, those scrawny-looking animals, but he kept all the good ones. And when God sends Samuel to confront Saul, what does Saul do? The very first thing that anyone says, Saul comes racing out and he says in verse 13, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And why would he say that? Doesn't it indicate that he, he knows that he hasn't? Samuel says, well, what is this noise? You know, I can hear sheep, I can hear cows. Don't you remember what the commands were? Why am I hearing animals still alive? And Saul insists, no, no, I have done what I was commanded. Samuel corrects Saul. Uh, he reminds him of the original command and then in, uh, in verse 19. And even then, Saul continues to protest his innocence, continues to say, I was obedient. I did what I was commanded to do. And it's completely bizarre because he clearly hasn't obeyed and yet seems to think that he has. It's, it's like... It's like he's deceived himself to assume that he has done what is right. And so what Saul shows us is this capacity for people to justify themselves when they've done wrong. So much so that they actually can, we convince ourselves that we've done right, in fact, when we have not. Uh, and Saul does that. He tries to prove his innocence. He gets out all of these arguments to try to prove that even though he has disobeyed, that he, that he thinks he has obeyed. And uh, there's a number of them in verses 20 to 21. So if you look down there, I'm sure um, we're all familiar with these excuses because we tend to make them quite a lot. Uh, but notice what he says. Uh, verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. So he's arguing that he's done everything he's commanded to do, and yet notice how he slips in there, I, I've kept Amalek. And uh, we don't really know why. Um, there's all these um, interesting um, ideas in commentaries about why he did it. Uh, but it doesn't actually say why. But he's kept this guy alive, he's done some other things, but you can see what Saul's saying. He's saying that, look, what I have done is enough. Okay? I've partially obeyed, and in Saul's mind, that equals obedience. It's almost like he's saying that when it comes to obeying God, rough enough is good enough. You know, just so long as you do a bit, don't worry about the rest, that's all fine. And uh, the trouble with partial obedience is that it, it isn't obedience. There's no such thing as partial obedience. That's actually an oxymoron. If it's partial, it's not obedience. Uh, then not only that, Saul, he tries to divert attention to other people. Have a look at verse 21. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction. Okay, he's saying, don't look at me. Look at that guy over there. Look how many sheep he has. This is the blame-shifting game. Uh, then the next one, he, he tries to put a good spin on the disobedience. He says that the reason that they kept the um, good animals was so that they could, end of verse 21, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he's trying to say our intentions were good. 
You know, we, we were sincere. <laughs> He's trying to hide behind religiosity. Uh, this is like that classic case of um, sharing gossip and then saying, oh, by the way, that's, I only say that so you can pray about it. Uh, actually, Saul's actions reminds me of a time when um, one of our children were really little and we'd put them to bed, you know, lights out kind of thing. And uh, then we could hear um, playing. And so Jasmine went into the room and said, you know, why are you disobeying? And they quickly grabbed the Bible and said, oh, I have to read my Bible. And, you know, and what do you say to that as a parent? You say what Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, in other words, the, all the pious acts are pretty empty when you're outwardly obeying God, when you're deliberately disobeying. And that's actually, it's worth spending time on this little poem that, that Samuel has there uh, in verse 22 and 23. You know, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's worth spending time reflecting on that because it is talking about our religious acts. You know, the, the attending a worship service, um, daily Bible reading plan. In one sense, these things are very easy to do. Anyone can do these things. And yet we can do those and assume everything is okay in our lives because we're doing those things. And yet, for the most part, for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, we're living uh, self-centeredly, we're living impatient lives, we're living uh, indifferent to the needs of others, careless in our words, bending the truth when it suits us, committing lust in our heart. You know, all these things that are going on and yet we go, well, because we did that, ba you know, ticked off daily Bible reading, then everything is fine. But what does it say? To obey is better than sacrifice. Okay, that, that's, it's not saying that God is against sacrifice or that he's against um, rituals even, like daily Bible reading. Of course he wants us to do that. But all of that is completely empty if there's no obedience if we're still living in rebellion to him. That's the point he's making. And that was the problem with Saul. He's living in a rebellion and yet he thinks that we can do all these other things and that, that's going to make everything fine. Now then there's the issue with Saul's confession of sin, uh, which comes in verse 24. Um, because Samuel, he just tells Saul, you, you are now rejected as the king. That's it. Okay, previously your dynasty was rejected, but now it's actually you personally as a king, you're, you're over, no more. And at that point, Saul gets very upset. He, he says, I have sinned. Uh, let's actually read it. He says in verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now, when you actually think about what Saul's saying there, you realise this is not repentance. This is admission of sin, but it is not repentance because clearly Saul is not sorry for what he has done. He's not sorry for the sin. He's actually sorry for being caught. He's sorry for the consequences of having the kingdom taken off him. That's why he's admitting it. He's not sorry over his sin. There is no actual repentance in Saul. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but first we need to ask, why is Saul like this? Why is Saul so defensive about his disobedience? 
And why is he so willing to disobey in the first place? Why did he find it so easy to have a clear command of God and just to go, you know, forget that, I've got something better to do? Why is he like that? And there is a reason. Because there's always a reason why we disobey God. The reason is never, you know, I wake up one day, hey, I feel like disobeying God, I'll go out and do that now. That's never the reason. It's never, oh, I couldn't help it. There's always a deeper reason why we disobey God. And you can see that in Saul in a number of places in this passage. Uh, for example, let's just go back to this statement in verse 22, where Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. But then Samuel gives the reason for that. He says, rebellion, in verse 23, is the sin of divination. And presumption is as an iniquity and, a, and idolatry. Idolatry. Now, notice how Samuel uh, calls Saul's disobedience idolatry. And you've got to ask the question, how are Saul's actions idolatry? What was the idol that he was worshipping in all of his behaviour? And it's actually, the answer is very clear in the passage. The idol that Saul was worshipping was himself. And that comes out in a number of places. Uh, Andrew read the first part uh, where uh, in verse 12 um, Samuel was told that Saul has set up a monument to himself. So he, he won this victory over the Amalekites and as a result he set up a monument and what did that monument say? It said, look how great I am. Okay, it said to the people, look at me, look at how great I am. And uh, then when Saul admitted his mistake, see, here's the issue with Saul's repentance. When he admitted his sin, he makes this excuse that the reason he did it was because he feared the people. You know, he was worried what people would think of him. And he thinks that's a legitimate excuse. But what he's actually doing is admitting the real drive of his life. The drive of Saul's life is what people think about him. It's his own image. He, he, he wanted people to like him. He wanted respect and admiration. That's what the monument was about. That's what keeping these animals was all about. Saul couldn't bear to have people not like him. He couldn't have that idea of you know, the soldier saying, hey, let's keep the good stuff. Saul couldn't bring himself to say, no, you can't do that because he was worried that people wouldn't like him. And so that's why he gave in. And uh, even when Samuel says, well, the kingdom's now been ripped from you, Saul says, please honour me in front of the people. Now, he's still thinking about his own image. That's why this is not repentance. He's still hanging on to the very sin, the very heart issue that drove him to, do, to disobey in the first place and that is the love of self, worshipping himself, worshipping his image. That's what's at the heart of all of this and that's what he's not willing to give up. Even after everything else has taken in his life, he is hanging on to this one with his hands clenched tight. And so it meant that whenever, for Saul, whenever his honour clashed with God's honour, 
God lost. Or whenever people-pleasing clashed with pleasing God, again, God lost. Because the main drive of his life was himself, his own image. And that's very important to think about. It's a really good insight into what is behind disobedience. Disobedience, like I said, it doesn't just happen by thinking, hey, I'll just disobey today. There's always a heart issue that's driving it, a reason why we do it. And so whenever we do disobey in our life, we need to actually stop and go, what's driving that? What's behind that? What is it that I'm wanting to, to get that made me disobey? Okay, because all disobedience flows out of the heart. And so we need to go and look back in the heart. What is this thing that I'm loving so much that I'm actually loving more than God that would cause me to disobey? <clears throat> and that's why repentance must always be more than just confessing the act itself. We have to look at what's going on in the heart. What is it that we love? What, and usually it's, it's almost always going to be about ourselves. You know, our ego, our comfort, our rights, our honour, our authority, our ego, uh, our self-importance, those are the things that often drive uh, disobedience. <clears throat> okay, so God, he doesn't minimise sin. We, we tend to minimise sin because of the idolatry of the self. But there's a third um, thing here about all of this, uh, and that is that God actually regrets disobedience. God regrets disobedience. And uh, this comes out in two places uh, in the uh, passage. So if you look at verse 11, um, when God first um, involves Samuel, he says to Samuel in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Okay, so that's, that's at the start of this whole section on Saul. And then at the very end of it, in verse 35, at the end of that, we see that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So can you see how that whole section is um, bookended by this statement on God's regret over making Saul king? which means that it's, it's an important statement that the author doesn't want us to miss, which means I've got to say something about it. Uh, and we need to ask the question, in what sense did God regret making Saul king? Because that's a very interesting thing to say about God, that he regretted something. You know, often when we talk about regret, we mean being upset over a decision that we made or some mistake that we made that has ongoing implications in our lives. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of my biggest regrets was a decision that I made when I was nine years old. And the decision was, uh, I started piano lessons and uh, it all went well for a few months until the um, teacher was saying, you need to practice more. You need to practice more. Uh, and that meant less time for TV. And I can still remember in my nine-year-old mind weighing it up, thinking, okay, practice piano or watch TV. Hey, the decision's easy. TV's far more important. And so I chucked in the piano lessons. And I have regretted that decision ever since. Especially, you know, when you get 
older and you enjoy music and you want to know how to do all that stuff. Uh, anyway, clearly that, that decision, I see it in a different light due to hindsight. Okay, I can look back and go, that was a really stupid decision and I regret it. Now on the surface, it seems like God was feeling that way over making Saul king. You know, that now that it's gone pear shape, he goes, that was a big mistake. You know, we can almost imagine God kind of thumping the table going, ah, why did I ever give in to that? You know, those Israelites were trying to make me do that. Why did I ever give in? But see, clearly that cannot be what it means for God to regret. Because we, we know God never has those moments. He never has those, why did I do that moment? Okay, for God, he never has that issue of hindsight where he goes, oh, now I realise I shouldn't have done what I did back then. God never has that and the reason is, is because God is omniscient. God, that means he knows everything and God is sovereign, which means he controls everything. God knows what's going to happen in the future because he sets the future. And that means God is never in a position where he goes, ah, if only I knew. And so in that sense, God doesn't have regrets. And do you know the, the passage even tells us that? Uh, did you notice verse 29? Uh, where is it? Verse 29. Um, this is where um, Samuel tells Saul that he's not going to be king anymore. And just to kind of... Um, underlie that. He says in verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So it's as if the author put that in there just to make sure we didn't jump to the wrong conclusion when we're thinking about God's regret over making Saul king. So then we have to ask, well then in what sense did God regret making Saul king? And the answer has to be in the sense of the sorrow over it, okay? the grief over Saul's disobedience. The regret God has was not that he was upset over a lack of foresight in himself, but he has a, a, a regret over the lack of obedience in Saul. That's, the, that's what God regrets, Saul's disobedience. It genuinely grieved God. Okay, you can see God is actually responding to the way Saul has acted, even though he knew about it. For all of eternity, God's, God knew this was going to happen and yet he still feels regret over it. He still has that, that response of grief over the state of Saul's heart. That's amazing to think about because this is the God who is sovereign. This is the God who is unchanging in his character, who is unchanging in his plan who knows one end from the beginning and yet he's not a cold slab of concrete who doesn't respond to anything. Okay? He's a God who interacts with his people, a God who feels grief when his own people sin. And God regrets the lack of repentance in Saul, which means he must regret the lack of repentance in anyone, even in this room, who trying to have one foot in the kingdom and yet still living a rebellious and unrepentant life. God regrets our sin. That means it grieves him. And so what should we do? What should we do in light of that? 
we should repent. We should stop making excuses. Okay, look at Saul's excuses. Like I read that and I see myself, I hear myself in Saul's words. And so I know that this text is telling me I need to stop doing that. Stop treating sin like that leaking roof, thinking we can ignore it and it'll go away. No, no, what we need to do is flee to Christ for forgiveness, flee to him for cleansing, knowing that at the cross Jesus has paid it all and then commit ourselves to living for him, living for his honour rather than our own. Because Jesus is the king who has obeyed perfectly. He never had a Saul moment. He did everything just right. And he went to the cross for us so that we can be saved.